Part Four of Enchantress of Venus by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. Red, 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 the color of blood, blood in his eyes. He was remembering now. The quarry had turned on him, and they had fought on the bare, blistering rocks. Nor had Nchaka killed. The lord of the rocks was very big, a giant among lizards, and Nchaka was small. The lord of the rocks had laid open Nchaka's head before the wooden spear had more than scratched his flank. It was strange that Nchaka still lived. The lord of the rocks must have been full-fed. Only that had saved him. Nchaka groaned not with pain, but with shame. He had failed. Hoping for a great triumph, he had disobeyed the tribal law that forbids a boy to hunt the quarry of a man, and he had failed. Old One would not reward him with the girdle and the flint spear of manhood. Old One would give him to the women for the punishment of little whips. Tika would laugh at him and it would be many seasons before Old One would grant him permission to try the man's hunt. Blood in his eyes. He blinked to clear them. The instinct of survival was prodding him. He must arouse himself and creep away before the Lord of the Rocks returned to eat him. The redness would not go away. It swam and flowed, strangely sparkling. He blinked again and tried to lift his head and could not, and fear struck down upon him like the iron frost of night upon the rocks of the valley. It was all wrong. He could see himself clearly, a naked boy, dizzy with pain, rising and clambering over the ledges and the shale to the safety of the cave. He could see that, and yet he could not move. All wrong! Time, space, the universe darkened and turned. A voice spoke to him, a girl's voice, not Tika's, and the speech was strange. Tika was dead. Memories rushed through his mind, the bitter things, the cruel things. Old One was dead, and all the others. The voice spoke again, calling him by a name that was not his own. Stark. Memory shattered into a kaleidoscope of broken pictures, fragments rushing, spinning. He was adrift among them. He was lost, and the terror of it brought a scream into his throat. Soft hands touching his face, gentle words, swift and soothing. The redness cleared and steadied, though it did not go away, and quite suddenly he was himself again with all his memories where they belonged. He was lying on his back, and Zareth, Malthor's daughter, was looking down at him. He knew now what the redness was. He had seen it too often before not to know. He was somewhere at the bottom of the Red Sea, that weird ocean in which a man can breathe, and he could not move. That had not changed nor gone away. His body was dead. The terror he had felt before was nothing to the agony that filled him now. 
He lay entombed in his own flesh, staring up at Zareth, wanting an answer to a question he dared not ask. She understood from the look in his eyes. "'It's all right,' she said, and smiled. "'It will wear off. You'll be all right. It's only the weapon of the Elhari. Somehow it puts the body to sleep, but it will wake again.' Stark remembered the black object that Egil had held in his hands. A projector of some sort, then, beaming a current of high-frequency vibration that paralyzed the nerve centers. He was amazed. The Cloud People were barbarians themselves, though on a higher scale than the Swamp-edged tribes, and certainly had no such scientific proficiency. He wondered where the Elhari had got hold of such a weapon. It didn't really matter, not just now. Relief swept over him, bringing him dangerously close to tears. The effect would wear off. At the moment that was all he cared about. He looked up at Zareth again. Her pale hair floated with the slow breathing of the sea, a milky cloud against the spark-shot crimson. He saw now that her face was drawn and shadowed, and there was a terrible hopelessness in her eyes. She had been alive when he first saw her, frightened, not too bright, but full of emotion and a certain dogged courage. Now the spark was gone, crushed out. She wore a collar around her white neck, a ring of dark metal with the ends fused together for all time. "'Where are we?' he asked. And she answered, her voice carrying deep and hollow in the dense substance of the sea. "'We are in the place of the Lost Ones.' Stark looked beyond her, as far as he could see, since he was unable to turn his head and wonder came to him. Black walls, black vault above him, a vast hall filled with the wash of the sea that slipped in streaks of whispering flame through the high embracers. A hall that was the twin to the vault of shadows where he had met the Elhari. "'This is a city,' said Zareth dully. "'You will see it soon. You will see nothing else until you die.' Stark said very gently, "'How do you come here, little one?' "'Because of my father. I will tell you all I know, which is little enough. Malthor has been slaver to the Elhari for a long time. There are a number of them among the captains of Sharoon, but that is a thing that is never spoken of, so I, his daughter, could only guess. I was sure of it when he sent me after you.' She laughed, a bitter sound. Now I'm here, with the collar of the Lost Ones on my neck, but Malthor is here too. She laughed again, ugly laughter to come from a young mouth. Then she looked at Stark, and her hand reached out timidly to touch his hair in what was almost a caress. Her eyes were wide and soft and full of tears. Why didn't you go into the swamps when I warned you?" Stark answered stolidly. Too late to worry about that now. Then, you say Malthor is here, a slave? Yes. Again that look of wonder and admiration in her eyes. I don't know what you said or did to the Elhari, 
but the Lord Egil came down in a black rage and cursed my father for a bungling fool because he could not hold you. My father whined and made excuses, and all would have been well, only his curiosity got the better of him, and he asked the Lord Egil what had happened. You were like a wild beast, Malthor said, and he hoped you had not harmed the Lady Vara, as he could see from Egil's wounds that there had been trouble. The Lord Egil turned quite purple. I thought he was going to fall in a fit. Yes, said Stark. That was the wrong thing to say. The ludicrous side of it struck him, and he was suddenly roaring with laughter. <laughs> Malthor should have kept his mouth shut. Egil called his guard and ordered them to take Malthor, and when he realized what had happened, Malthor turned on me, trying to say that it was all my fault that I let you escape. Stark stopped laughing. Her voice went on slowly. Egil seemed quite mad with fury. I have heard that the Elhari are all mad, and I think it is so. At any rate, he ordered me taken, too, for he wanted to stamp Malthor's seed into the mud forever. So we are here. There was a long silence. Stark could think of no word of comfort, and as for hope, he had better wait until he was sure he could at least raise his head. Egil might have damaged him permanently out of spite. In fact, he was surprised he wasn't dead. He glanced again at the collar on Zareth's neck. Slave, slave to the Elhari, in the city of the Lost Ones. What the devil did they do with slaves at the bottom of the sea? The heavy gases conducted sound remarkably well, except for an odd property of diffusion which made it seem that a voice came from everywhere at once. Now, all at once, Stark became aware of a dull clamor of voices drifting towards him. He tried to see, and Zareth turned his head carefully so that he might. The Lost Ones were returning from whatever work it was they did. Out of the dim red murk beyond the open door they swam into the long, long vastness of the hall that was filled with the same red murk, moving slowly, their white bodies trailing wakes of sullen flame. The host of the damned drifting through a strange red-litten hell, weary and without hope. One by one they sank onto pallets, laid in rows on the black stone floor, and lay there, utterly exhausted their pale hair lifting and floating with the slow eddies of the sea, and each one wore a collar. One man did not lie down. He came towards Stark, a tall barbarian who drew himself with great strokes of his arms, so that he was wrapped in wheeling sparks. Stark knew his face. Helvi, he said, and smiled in welcome. Brother! Helvi crouched down. A great handsome boy he had been the time Stark saw him. But he was a man now, with all the laughter turned to grim deep lines around his mouth, and the bones of his face standing out like granite ridges. "'Brother!' he said again, looking at Stark through a glitter of unashamed tears. "'Fool!' 
and he cursed Stark savagely because he had come to Sharoon to look for an idiot who had gone the same way and was already as good as dead. "'Would you have followed me?' asked Stark. "'But I am only an ignorant child of the swamps,' said Helvy. "'You come from space. You know the other worlds. You can read and write. You should have better sense.' Stark grinned. And I'm still an ignorant child of the rocks. So we're two fools together. Where is Tobal? Tobal was Helvi's brother, who had broken taboo and looked for refuge in Sharoon. Apparently he had found peace at last, for Helvi shook his head. A man cannot live too long under the sea. It is not good merely to breathe and eat. Tobal overran his time and I am close to the end of mine." He held up his hand and then swept it down sharply, watching the broken fires dance along his arms. "'The mind breaks before the body,' said Helvi casually, as though it were a matter of no importance. Zareth spoke. "'Helvi has guarded you each period while the others slept.' "'And not I alone,' said Helvi. "'The little one stood with me.' "'Guarded me?' said Stark. "'Why?' For answer, Helvi gestured toward a pallet not far away. Malthor lay there, his eyes half-open and full of malice, the fresh scar livid on his cheek. "'He feels,' said Helvi, "'that you should not have fought upon his ship.' Stark felt an inward chill of horror. "'To lie here helpless!' watching Malthor come toward him with open fingers reaching for his helpless throat. He made a passionate effort to move and gave up, gasping. Helvi grinned. Now is the time I should wrestle you, Stark, for I never could throw you before. He gave Stark's head a shake, very gentle for all its apparent roughness. You'll be throwing me again. Sleep now and don't worry. He settled himself to watch, and presently, in spite of himself, Stark slept, with Zareth curled at his feet like a little dog. There was no time down there in the heart of the Red Sea. No daylight, no dawn, no space of darkness. No winds blew, no rain nor storm broke the endless silence. Only the lazy currents whispered by on their way to nowhere and the red sparks danced, and the great hall waited, remembering the past. Stark waited, too. How long he never knew, but he was used to waiting. He had learned his patience on the knees of the great mountains, whose heads lift proudly into open space to look at the sun, and he had absorbed their own contempt for time. Little by little life returned to his body. A mongrel guard came now and then to examine him, pricking Stark's flesh with his knife to test the reaction, so that Stark should not malinger. He reckoned without Stark's control. The earthman bore his prodding without so much as a twitch until his limbs were completely his own again. Then he sprang up and pitched the man half the length of the hall, turning over and over, yelling with startled anger. 
At the next period of labor, Stark was driven with the rest out into the city of the Lost Ones. Stark had been in places before that oppressed him with a sense of their strangeness or their wickedness. Sinharat, the lovely ruin of coral and gold lost in the Martian wastes. Jakara, Volcus, the low canal towns that smell of blood and wine, the cliff caves of Arianrod on the edge of Darkside, the buried tomb cities of Callisto. But this, this was nightmare to haunt a man's dreams. He stared about him as he went in the long line of slaves, and felt such a cold, shuddering contraction of his belly as he had never known before. Wide avenues, paved with polished blocks of stone, perfect as ebon mirrors. Buildings, tall and stately, pure and plain, with a calm strength that could outlast the ages. Black, all black, with no fripperies of paint or carving to soften them, only here and there a window like a drowned jewel glinting through the red. Vines like drifts of snow cascading down the stones. Gardens with close-clipped turf, and flowers lifting bright on their green stalks. Their petals open to a daylight that was gone, their head bending as though to some forgotten breeze. All neat, all tended, the branches pruned, the fresh soil turned this morning. By whose hand? Stark remembered the great forest dreaming at the bottom of the gulf, and shivered. He did not like to think how long ago these flowers must have opened their young bloom to the last light they were ever going to see, for they were dead. Dead as the forest, dead as the city, forever bright and dead. Stark thought that it must always have been a silent city. It was impossible to imagine noisy throngs flocking to a market square down these immense avenues. The black walls were not made to echo song or laughter. Even the children must have moved quietly along the garden paths, small, wise creatures born to an ancient dignity. He was beginning to understand now the meaning of that weird forest. The Gulf of Sharoon had not always been a gulf. It had been a valley, rich, fertile, with this great city in its arms, and here and there on the upper slopes the retreat of some noble or philosopher, of which the castle of the Elhari was a survivor. A wall or rock had held back the Red Sea from this valley, and then, somehow, the wall had cracked and the sullen crimson tide had flowed slowly, slowly into the fertile bottoms, rising higher, lapping the towers and the treetops in swirling flame, drowning the land forever. Stark wondered if the people had known the disaster was coming, if they had gone forth to tend their gardens for the last time, so that they might remain perfect in the embalming gases of the sea. The columns of slaves, herded by overseers armed with small black weapons similar to the one Egil had used, came out into a broad square whose farther edges were veiled in the red murk, and Stark looked on ruin. A great building had fallen in the center of the square. 
The gods only knew what force had burst its walls and tossed the giant blocks like pebbles into a heap. But there it was, the one untidy thing in the city, a mountain of debris. Nothing else was damaged. It seemed that this had been the place of temples, and they stood unharmed, ranked around the sides of the square, the dim fires rippling through their porticos. Deep in their inner shadows Stark thought he could make out images, gigantic things brooding in the spark-shot gloom. He had no chance to study them. The overseer cursed them on, and now he saw what use the slaves were put to. They were cleaning away the wreckage of the fallen building. Helby whispered, For sixteen years men have slaved and died down here, and the work is not half done. And why do the Elhari want it done at all? I'll tell you why, because they are mad, mad as swamp dragons gone must in the spring. It seemed madness indeed to labor at this pile of rocks in a dead city at the bottom of the sea. It was madness. And yet the Elhari, though they might be insane, were not fools. There was a reason for it, and Stark was sure it was a good reason, good for the Elhari at any rate. An overseer came up to Stark, thrusting him roughly toward a sled already partly loaded with broken rocks. Stark hesitated, his eyes turning ugly, and Helvy said, "'Come on, you fool! Do you want to be down flat on your back again?' Stark glanced at the little weapon, blunt and ready, and turned reluctantly to obey. And there began his servitude. It was a weird sort of life he led. For a while he tried to reckon time by the periods of work and sleep, but he lost count, and it did not greatly matter anyway. He labored with the others, hauling the huge blocks away, clearing out the cellars that were partly bared, shoring up wheat walls underground. The slaves clung to their old habit of thought, calling the work periods days and the sleep periods nights. Each day Egil or his brother Kond came to see what had been done, and went away black-browed and disappointed, ordering the work speeded up. Trion was there also much of the time. He would come slowly in his awkward, crab-wise way, and perch like a pale gargoyle on the stones, never speaking, watching with his sad, beautiful eyes. He woke a vague foreboding in Stark. There was something awesome in Trion's silent patience, as though he waited the coming of some black doom, long delayed but inevitable. Stark would remember the prophecy and shiver. It was obvious to Stark, after a while, that the Elhari were clearing the building to get at the cellars underneath. The great dark caverns, already bared, had yielded nothing. But the brothers still hoped. Over and over, Kond and Egil sounded the walls and the floors, prying here and there, and chafing at the delay in opening up the underground labyrinth. What they hoped to find, no one knew. Vara came, too. Alone and often she would drift down through the dim mist-fires and watch, smiling a secret smile, 
her hair like blown silver where the currents played with it. She had nothing but curt words for Egil, but she kept her eyes on the great dark earthman, and there was a look in them that stirred his blood. Egil was not blind, and it stirred his too, but in a different way. Zareth saw that look. She kept as close to Stark as possible, asking no favors but following him around with a sort of quiet devotion, seeming contented only when she was near him. One night in the slave barracks she crouched beside his pallet, her hand on his bare knee. She did not speak, and her face was hidden by the floating masses of her hair. Stark turned her head so that he could see her, pushing the pale cloud gently away. What troubles you, little sister? Her eyes were wide and shadowed with some vague fear, but she only said, It's not my place to speak. Why not? Because— Her mouth trembled, and then suddenly she said, Oh, uh, it's foolish, I know, but the woman of the Elhari— What about her? She watches you. Always she watches you. And the Lord Egil is angry. There is something in her mind, and it will bring you only evil. I know it. It seems to me, said Stark wryly, that the Alhari have already done as much evil as possible to all of us. No, answered Zareth with an odd wisdom. Our hearts are still clean. Stark smiled. He leaned over and kissed her. I'll be careful, little sister. Quite suddenly she flung her arm around his neck and clung to him tightly, and Stark's face sobered. He patted her rather awkwardly, and then she had gone to curl up on her own pallet with her head buried in her arms. Stark lay down. His heart was sad, and there was a stinging moisture in his eyes. The red eternities dragged on. Stark learned what Helvi had meant when he said that the mind broke before the body. The sea-bottom was no place for creatures of the upper air. He learned also the meaning of the metal collars and the manner of Tobal's death. Elvi explained, There are boundaries laid down. Within them we may range, if we have the strength and the desire after work. Beyond them we may not go, and there is no chance of escape by breaking through the barrier. How this is done I do not understand, but it is so, and the collars are the key to it. When a slave approaches the barrier the collar brightens as though with fire, and the slave falls. I have tried this myself, and I know. Half paralyzed you may still crawl back to safety, but if you are mad, as Tobal was, and charge the barrier strongly, he made a cutting motion with his hands. Stark nodded. He did not attempt to explain electricity or electronic vibrations to Helvi, but it seemed plain enough that the force with which the Alhari kept their slaves in check was something of the sort. The collars acted as conductors, perhaps for the same type of beam that was generated in the hand weapons. When the metal broke the invisible boundary line, it triggered off a force beam from the central power station in the manner of the obedient electric eye that opens doors and rings alarm bells. First a warning, then death. 
The boundaries were wide enough, extending around the city and enclosing a good bit of forest beyond it. There was no possibility of a slave hiding among the trees, because the collar could be traced by the same type of beam turned to low power, and the punishment meted out to a retaken man was such that few were foolish enough to try that game. The surface, of course, was utterly forbidden. The one unguarded spot was the island where the central power station was, and here the slaves were allowed to come sometimes at night. The Alhari had discovered that they lived longer and worked better if they had an occasional breath of air and a look at the sky. Many times Stark made that pilgrimage with the others. Up from the red depth they would come, through the reeling bands of fire where the currents ran, through the clouds of crimson sparks and the sullen patches of stillness that were like pools of blood. A company of white ghosts shrouded in flame, rising from their tomb for a little taste of the world they had lost. It didn't matter that they were so weary that they had barely the strength to get back to the barracks and sleep. They found the strength. To walk again on the open ground, to be rid of the eternal crimson dusk and the oppressive weight on their chest, to look up into the hot blue night of Venus and smell the fragrance of the liha trees borne on the land wind, they found the strength. They sang there, sitting on the island rocks and staring through the mists toward the shore they would never see again. It was their chanting that Stark had heard when he came down the gulf with Malthor, that wordless cry of grief and loss. Now he was here himself, holding Zareth close to comfort her, and joining his own deep voice into that primitive reproach to the gods. While he sat howling like the savage he was, he studied the power plant, a squat blockhouse of a place. On the nights the slave came, guards were stationed outside to warn them away. The blockhouse was doubly guarded with the shock-beam. To attempt to take it by force would only mean death for all concerned. Stark gave that idea up for the time being. There was never a second when escape was not in his thoughts. But he was too old in the game to break his neck against a stone wall. Like Malthor, he would wait. End of Part 4